Hi there, I'm Austin Hopkins. And I'm Haley Robinson. And this is the Wild Idaho Podcast, coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the land you love. Each month, we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work that we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening. The big majority of the Big Green District is uh, wilderness. However, the Stimnite area is just barely outside of wilderness. Stimnite is in the very headwaters of the east fork of the south fork of the Salmon River. It's Fred Coriel. I'm a resident of McCall, Idaho. I've been living in Idaho since about 2002. And um, that was actually the first year I paddled the South Fork of the Salmon. And I've paddled it every year since. It's the best river in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome everyone back to another Wild Idaho episode. Today, Haley and I are sitting down with John Robison, ICL's Public Lands Director. Um, John, introduce yourself and then also tell us the two voices that we just heard, who they are, and kind of give us some context of what they're talking about. Again, this is John Robison and I'm the Public Lands Director and I work a lot on tracking a lot of mining projects and forest restoration projects and wildlife issues and uh, we've been interested in this area, this unique corner of Idaho for, for some time. I actually first paddled the South Fork of the Salmon uh, 18 years ago and came here from a, with a guiding background from back east. And actually, I, I spent six years working as a river guide on East Tennessee downstream from an open pit copper mine. And that river had great whitewater, but no fish because of the metals contamination there. So it was really amazing to come out here and paddle, you know, a world-renowned resource like the, the South Fork Salmon with this amazing, you know, fishery. And then um, to find out that there's a, um, a mining history upstream and also proposed mine uh, project, uh, renewed mine project farther upstream too. So anyway, that's kind of my background. But the, the folks you heard from, uh, Earl Dodds, who's the uh, former ranger of the... Big Creek District up on the Payette uh, that included the Frank Church and others. And so Earl's got decades of amazing experience in that country and in the community. And also um, uh, Fred Coriel, who is a McCall local and uh, a kayaker uh, and actually quite a, uh, an amazing uh, paddler as well. So um, he's got a lot of interest and at, uh, a lot at stake in, in, this, uh, in this river and in this community. So, JR, can you tell us a little bit about the proposed project and what is happening, what our interest is in that area currently? Yeah. So, I like to, this is uh, with regard to Midas Gold's Stibnite Gold Project. And uh, as I like to say, Midas Gold is my favorite mining company with my least favorite project. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the staff are really uh, outgoing and professional and and, uh, give great presentations but the actual mine plan they've come up with uh, raises a lot of concerns for a lot of people. Uh, it sounds great uh, in the tagline uh, with the, the whole restore the site um, emphasis, but um, there's some bigger problems uh, uh, with the, the project that are starting to emerge, and uh, people are starting to get really concerned about that. 
So is it right to say they're looking at opening a mine in this area of Idaho? And um, if I'm remembering right, the like you said, the tagline is that they're going to restore it and leave the area better than they found it. That's kind of their promise to the locals. Is that right? That's right. That's the, the, the tagline. And, and um, the area, uh, just for for reference, uh, if you have ever been to the, the great little town of, of Yellow Pine, they have a great harmonica festival. I was going to say a harmonica festival. <laughs> they also have a fantastic uh, golf course in a um, uh, stand of old growth ponderosa pine. You actually wear your kayaking helmet when you're playing golf there because of the ricochets. Oh. Uh, but it's a really unique little area up there. Uh, great hunting, camping, fishing, gateway to the Frank Church. Uh, but also there's the uh, a, an amazing mining history up there at the Stibnite site where uh, you had the Thunder Mountain Gold Rush uh, over 100 years ago, and then you had uh, uh, Stibnite played a big role in World War II efforts for antimony, which was used for, uh, to, uh, for war efforts. And, uh, and then you had a bunch of gold mining that happened back there. Uh, some of this happened before there were modern environmental regulations, some of it happened afterwards, uh, but the upshot, it's kind of a big mess up there. Um, and uh, along comes Midas Gold, promising to, to clean everything up, which sounds great, but um, the actual footprint is going to be much bigger than anything else that has happened up there. And the risks are potentially bigger than anything else that's happened up there as well. Hmm. You know, it's I think everything you just said really highlights how big of an issue this is. And um, for our listeners, just to kind of give you some context, we, we've decided in order to best tell this story, we're going to need to break it up into two separate episodes. Um, you know, JR was just speaking about kind of the history of the mining in the area and, and the, the efforts that, the, that previous companies have played and the legacy they've left. Um, we've talked about the value of, of the river in itself. JR, you know, this is one of the, the rivers that brought him to Idaho and um, got him to do the work he's doing today. And then we have Midas's proposal, which is, is overseeing all of that. So we've decided we're going to break this into the two episodes. This first episode that you're listening to, we're really going to focus in on, on the value of the river, uh, the value of the environment in the area, and then the threat. What, what's, what's going on and why are those values threatened? In the next episode, we're going to talk again with JR and uh, talk what the, the current proposal is, Midas's plan, uh, and the implications that can have, the risk that he just mentioned, um, and, and the, the threat that that has on, on fish, on wildlife, on the environment, um, you name it. One other kind of unique thing about this, uh, something new, the first time we've done this with the Wild Idaho podcast is... Uh, we sent JR out with our recorder. Um, so you, like you said, you just heard from Earl and Fred, um, two folks that JR met with in person and got some great interviews with. Um, and you're going to be hearing from other people as well. So uh, you'll, we'll be transitioning in and out. And um, to kind of tee that up, we're going to send it back to Fred. And Fred's going to kind of give some more context in his own words why rivers and the South Fork in particular, why it's such a special place um, and he's also going to talk a little bit more about some of the fish and the wildlife and the rafting you can expect to do uh, on that river. So we'll send it back to Fred. Rivers are an invaluable resource, in my opinion. Um, there is no replacement for them. Uh, and keeping them clean and healthy and viable ecosystems is, is so important in the value of 
you know, minerals doesn't, I don't think, in my opinion, that just, there's no comparison between that monetary value and the natural value of having that resource intact. There's no, there's no comparison there. I think that's one of the things that makes the South Fork very special is that it is, it's not on that, that list, you know, Middle Fork, Maine Salmon, um, the Whitewater is a little more difficult, so the accessibility is harder. Uh, it's in a very rugged canyon the entire way, and um, I think there's that, you know, that whole aspect of um, just being able to float remotely in a remote place and uh, really not see anybody except for where the road comes down <laughs> uh, in the middle of the run is um, it's incredible so in the South Fork you know there's there's bull trout um, there is a Chinook salmon run it's uh, I know the sea sesh and I'm not a fisheries guy but I do know that the sea sesh is kind of what they use as a control stream mm -hmm. as it's never been stocked so any fish which is not many but any fish that do get into the sea sesh come up the south fork right. yeah <laughs> and that's you know that's that's important um, the uh, other wildlife I mean you just you see a lot of birds of prey you know there's osprey there's I guess trying to think this this year we saw you know, a couple bald eagles. Um, you always see elk in there, obviously, and bear. I've actually seen a wolf um, just above Elk Creek uh -huh. um, on an early spring run one time. He was just sleeping under a log, and we pulled into the eddy and kind of startled each other. And the wolf got up from under his log and just kind of meandered up the hill. But, um, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what it is in there. It's wild. JR, it sounds like you guys had a really good conversation. It sounds like this river is a very beautiful and valuable place in Idaho that we should be working hard to protect. You know, it goes even beyond that in that the, the just for the whole region, the, the South Fork salmon contains the most important remaining habitat for summer Chinook salmon in the whole Columbia River Basin. So much of the other areas have been dammed or dewatered or there's, you know, habitat issues up there. And this is an area where really it is, it is uh, uh, significant to the entire uh, Columbia River system in terms of the previous salmon it supported and the potential to support them in the future. Um, so incredible resource for that. Um, and then, of course, uh, Earl Dodds, um, you know, has been through kind of this mining legacy before, and it was really interesting to talk with him. I spent a, a good amount of time uh, hearing his stories when along comes a, a mining company that uh, talks about, hey, we're going to uh, clean up this site and left, you know, uh, uh, leave it better than we found it. Um, and, um, uh, and there wasn't Midas Gold, though. This was decades ago with uh, previous mining companies on site. And um, Earl was, I think, originally optimistic that, hey, these guys can do it. Um, but things didn't work out that well for them hmm. and for the river. And, JR, can you remind listeners real quick, uh, Earl was a forest service, is that right? Yeah, district ranger up there. So it was his job to you know, basically supervise the new and improved 
modern mining practices up there uh, that were going to leave the site better than they found it. And, um, you know, the previous mining company promised, you know, not only to run a clean operation, but to clean up, you know, some of the old mess. And that, uh, you know, the mining companies promised that there's sufficient laws and regulations to, to make sure they do a good job. Um, and what we found, though, was um, a string of disasters on site where there are cyanide spills, diesel spills, uh, elk dying from ingesting contaminants, tandem tanker trailer trucks uh, carrying ammonium nitrate falling to the East Fork, South Fork Salmon River. Um, again, cyanide discovered uh, in the monitoring wells. And there was a whole host of revolving doors of companies from Ranchers Exploration, Superior Mobile, Pioneers Metals, Pegasus, and on. And some companies did a better job than others, some not so good. And, but basically, they did not leave the site better than they found it. And uh, taxpayers uh, ended up spending millions of dollars to kind of shore up the site. I can't even say they restored it, but to, to try to stop the, the worst parts up there. So this is with the promises of these companies doing it you know, right this time. And these are modern companies with uh, uh, practicing modern mining. And, and it, it didn't work out so well before, which is why... A lot of folks are skeptical about a renewed pitch for this because we've kind of heard it before. Yeah, yeah. Earl actually uh, he mentioned this, and I think in his own words here you can hear Earl tell his story about how he experienced or or what he experienced with with previous mining companies over his career uh, working as the district ranger. The revival of mining there in, in took place in about nineteen. 67, I believe it was, and that's when Canadian Superior came in. And Canadian Superior uh, uh, was a big outfit. They had a lot of money behind them, and uh, and they were uh, uh, the first ones in the state to have a uh, heat bleaching system there. We were right on the peak of the technology. And I kind of liked it there for a while because things were really happening there that hadn't been done before. And uh, and the, 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 I had kind of stars in my eyes there too. Hey, we're gonna show the earth, you can mine this place and protect the environment. And, it's, and the uh, generally the miners and the people that were doing the EIS for the miners with this uh, outfit out of Boise and Montgomery engineers were all in were all in favor of that we were all thought that was a, a pretty good deal and, and it really worked out for quite a while for quite a number of years there yeah, with that until things started to go a little wrong you know and uh, the the EIS yeah that we turned out for that thing. You don't hear much about it now, but uh, and David can remember going through that thing there. And and uh, uh, we, we thought we had a pretty darn good document to start with. There were several uh, kind of catchphrases there. One of them was we're gonna have net sediment production. You can remember that, I'm sure. 
Uh, other one, another order was uh, everything is in a closed system. Not, not, nothing gets out of this this system. But the, the, those all turned out to be uh, not valid when we really started the mine. So Earl's not the only former uh, employee or career professional who was working on this area that you got a chance to talk to. Um, there's another person you got to talk to. So can you can you introduce them and kind of give us their background as well? Yeah, I was really lucky to um, uh, chat with Dave Burns, who's a retired fisheries biologist on the Payette, and he's been there for, oh, uh, has a wealth of information about uh, salmon and steelhead, cutthroat trout, bull trout, and uh, and also what their needs are, what the risks are, uh, how to manage the habitat, how to restore some of the habitat, and uh, basically what these uh, uh, amazing um, uh, you know resources need to survive. So what what the fisheries up there really really need, um, and how to address the risks. Here's Dave Burns uh, giving his perspective on some of the impacts that historic mining has had on this area. The last time they did nothing good. The miners promised to do reclamation and they did nothing. They went up there and they mined in inclement weather and created sediment that we could document polluted the South Fork Salmon River all the way to Mackey Bar. Uh, in fact, they got under a, an order from the state because of the amount of pollution they produced. And uh, they just uh, didn't do any serious improvement in the area. In fact, the initial miners from Canada sold the operation and then uh, the second mining company went bankrupt uh, and left us with a mess that the taxpayers had to clean up. So now we've heard from two different people who were in, who are involved and engaged in all of this, um, who have talked about mining companies making promises that they ultimately can't fulfill. Uh, Jr., can you talk a little bit about kind of the history of that, and if there are, if this is a regular thing that happens, if these are exceptions? Yeah, and basically, I mean, we all need metals and minerals for our quality of life, and so they've got to come from someplace. Um, but the technology and the way we, we actually uh, extract those materials, we still have a lot to learn to, to actually accurately predict the impacts and try to, to minimize though, those so the risks are manageable. Um, and again and again, we keep coming across these state-of-the-art, you know, zero-discharge mines that say they're going to be great, um, like the Grouse Creek mine that uh, opened in 1994, and they were going to be, uh, it was the, the best of the best. Uh, but then um, they were cited for over 258 water quality violations and had a run of, uh, of straight violations for 210 days day, day straight. The foresters had to post signs up, you know, caution, don't drink this water. Um, and there are a bunch of just things that happened to get to go wrong. And their calculations uh, weren't correct at the time. Um, also, uh, even since 94, things haven't improved much since then, as, as much as we, we would like them to. Um, there was a study in 2017 that looked at the track records of 27 modern state-of-the-art 
mining, uh, gold mining companies, and they found that every single one of these companies accidentally spilled cyanide, mine waste, diesel fuel, or other hazardous materials, um, including at cyanide vat leach mines. So um, the bottom line is that things happen. It's hard to predict. And um, uh, so if you're going to have an operation uh, um, that is um, likely to have some type of impacts, um, location matters. And one of the things we're concerned about is this is such a sensitive watershed perched at the headwaters of the South Fork of the Salmon that if and when something goes wrong there, it can have really uh, uh, negative impacts uh, potentially for decades in the whole watershed downstream. So, I mean, this sounds like it, it's a lot of risk and, and I'm just wondering what, what sort of safety measures are in place. Is there anything that can be done when, when things go wrong and someplace violates for 200 days straight, like what the public, the, the you know, communities, what safety net do they have to, right. to clean that up? Right. Um, this is a great question. And uh, one of the, the best safety nets you can have if there's a real critical resource, let's say a municipal water supply or something that, um, my gosh, you know, there's, there's no way to replace this, um, uh, this resource and we don't want to put it at risk for uh, a mining operation that can um, uh, potentially mobilize um, large amounts of, of toxins. Um, the best way is to basically designate it as a wilderness or some other protection that removes uh, the ability for mining companies to go in there and stake new claims and turn it into an open pit mine operation. Uh, and so the best thing is to protect the watershed. Unfortunately, except for wilderness areas, National recreation areas, conservation areas, some other places like that. Um, outside of those protected areas, mining is the highest and best use of the land, more so than habitat for water for habitat for wildlife or fish, more so than drinking water for communities, more so than recreation, more so than uh, people who like to uh, recreate along the river or um, enjoy the quality of life there. Mining. Uh, by Congress is the highest and best use, unless Congress has excluded mining from uh, as part of these one of these designations. So, in short, that's kind of why groups like ICL really like to have wilderness designations because that means that you don't have to worry about an open pit mine uh, uh, taking priority there, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you're protecting that watershed. Uh, where you don't have those protections, you've got Mining Law of 1872. Uh, the Forest Service uh, has no choice but to permit the mine. They can put some sideboards on it, um, and they can kind of, kind of say, well, we'd like you to do it this way more than this way, um, but their job really is to issue the permit. One thing that um, is on the books that is uh, uh, somewhat helpful is the fact that mining companies are supposed to put together a bond uh, in the event that they go bankrupt and run away from the site and they leave a big mess. Which happens the, regularly? You know, <laughs> not regularly? More than we would like. Um, the bond basically is uh, the equivalent of a damage deposit. If you're, uh, uh, you know, have a, uh, a house and, um, or let's say you've got a, a, an apartment, you usually have to be a damage deposit mm -hmm. in case you trash it and then it's like, oh, that should, you know, cover the cleanup cost. If you do a good job, you get the bond back. Mm -hmm. uh, get the damage deposit back. Same thing is true with mining. Uh, however, uh, historically, 
bonds have been undersized and haven't actually been sufficient uh, uh, to really clean up the site and to reclaim the site properly. The Forest Service estimates the costs of the, the cleanup if a mining company happens to be to disappear, declare bankruptcy and run away. Um, one of the challenges though is that the bonds are calculated on things going according to plan. So the mining company says, here's our mining plan, the Forest Service approves it, and here's our cleanup plan, the Forest Service approves it, and that's the plan. The bond doesn't factor in things going amiss. So it doesn't really factor in a leaky liner, a truck going in the river, uh, cyanide pond spilling, all those things. And those uh, are acid mine drainage occurring on site, uh, selenium contamination, uh, lead, arsenic, mercury poisoning, things like that. They don't factor that in because they're not permitted to for those discharges. So the problem is that you know, it's really hard to get everything perfectly right. And as I mentioned, things sometimes go wrong and contaminants get out. And uh, when they do, it becomes really expensive to clean up sometimes. And so if you're a mining company and all of a sudden you miscalculated, you've got an ongoing uh, mercury problem or, or selenium problem for the next 500 years, uh, it is hard to uh, for the bond to pay this cleanup cost. So uh, all too often, mining companies can declare bankruptcy and say, keep our bond, um, and they leave the full cleanup cost and the pollution to the taxpayers. So getting the bond right is really important, but also getting a mine planned uh, so that um, you uh, uh, aren't putting things at risk uh, is another important part. Um, the issue up here in the South Fork of the Salmon Watershed is that it's a very sensitive watershed and the, if uh, things go wrong, they could go wrong for a long time and get very expensive. And that's actually a great segue. Um, you and Dave had a chance to talk about bonding for, for this area that we're talking about, right. kind of the Stibnite area. And he kind of, he had some great comments, not only on, on the shortcomings of the bonding for historical mining, but he also has some great, uh, great quotes in here about talking about just the broader implications of in restoration or reclamation post mining all over the place. And, and has it ever been successful at truly restoring or benefiting the environment? So sending it back to Dave here and, and Dave's going to kind of provide some perspective on this as well. The Forest Service had bonding and under the rules and regulations in those days, the bonding was completely inadequate. So the, the EPA and the Forest Service and the state had to step in and spend a lot of money that, of the taxpayers to clean up the mess. I was also thrilled that in 1978-1980 a Canadian mining company said they were going to restore the site completely based unfortunately on no scientific evidence I don't see any scientific evidence that mining companies actually can improve these areas I mean if if these if Midas Gold could actually come up with two or three instances worldwide 
of mining companies actually improving fish habitat and improving water quality, I'd be more receptive. But in fact, uh, I don't see any scientific evidence at all. It's just wishful thinking and a bunch of PR nonsense. They've done a bunch of stuff up there, planting and doing all this stuff, but what kind of scientific evidence do they have that they've actually done any reclamation, that they've actually done any water quality improvement? I haven't seen any data, no monitoring data, nothing to substantiate that they've actually done anything worthwhile. I mean, there's some feel-good stuff. Feel-good stuff is great. As long as you don't try to base a national environmental policy document on it. So we just heard Dave talk a little bit about how, how there's not really scientific evidence showing that mining can benefit the environment or, or fisheries. Um, you know, it, or it just has yet to be done. And um, he, he kind of threw Midas under the bus there a little bit. He said, you know, Midas has done a lot of PR stuff. They've, they've had nice presentations and they've done some plantings. Um, but, but they haven't brought that science to the table and it's leaving him a little uneasy. So, you know, as we said at the beginning of this episode, we're going to take the deep dive into Midas's proposal, what they have planned, um, and some potential solutions, uh, in the next episode. But before we end this episode, kind of our parting thoughts here, JR, I just want to end it with you and say, what are your thoughts? You, you've talked to these people, you work on this day in and day out. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts with Midas, this area? Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, given the history, not just at Stibnite, but also at these other mines across the West that were ushered in under this, you know, new state-of-the-art modern mining, and time and time again, they've had unexpected impacts. Uh, some of those were, you know, easier fixes, and some of those were real challenges that we're still dealing with. Um, so... I feel a little bit like, you know, Charlie Brown, uh, uh, you know, playing football with Lucy. So there's Lucy saying, you know, holding the football and come on, Charlie Brown, kick the football. Like, really? Are you really going to clean up the side? You're not going to leave us with a, you know, cleanup cost and you're not going to put the No, 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 no. It's good. It's good. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of going into this like, hey, there's this great company. We'd love to believe them. They're, you know, uh, uh, really friendly people. They have great, you know, press release. And, and uh, but there's a little bit of, of misgiving there particularly given the incredible importance of the watershed downstream. And if something bad happens, it could, it could be really bad for, for this, this fishery and this, this incredible you know, uh, uh, salmon run that, that is just recovering now. Also, um, the, uh, uh, the idea that um, it's not a pristine area. That's to be true. There, there's a legacy issue up there, and there is an argument to made for cleaning that up. I think that's a, that's a good part. Um, but then it comes into it where the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And Midas's proposal is not a modest proposal. This is a full-scale industrial complex that goes well beyond what could be a restoration project into something that is really converting it to a... a, a industrial site for a number of years with lots of uh, fraught with with hazards for the watershed and for the larger community there. And so the, the footprint of the historic mining is much smaller than what Midas is proposing, correct? Exactly, exactly. Okay. So they're kind of coloring outside the lines there. Um, 
And so that's one of the, the other concerns is just the scale of what's going on up there. I think there's a, a good statement for, for restoring the site, but what they're doing is, is definitely doing uh, a little bit more than restoring. Um, and let me just add, too, that you know, Midas, on, during the exploration process, um, they were doing things far better than other companies we've seen before, just to, to give credit where credit to do. Um, they had a, a, a good small-scale mitigation program for the exploration, their drill pads and their um, uh, haul roads and the helicopter access was actually really well done. Um, and they have a great little program uh, on how to reduce uh, light pollution from mining exploration activities. So they've got some great cutting-edge stuff that's, that's really uh, exciting to see a mining company um, uh, adopt and take on. Um, but the project, as envisioned, is coming way outside the lines and really way beyond our comfort level, uh, given the risks downstream should something go wrong. Okay. Well, that's, that's a great teaser for our next episode. You know, you, you can obviously sense we're nervous about this project. Uh, the next episode, we're going to take a deep dive in, in the, the nitty-gritty details of what we're so nervous about. So stay tuned, folks, um, and, and list, look out for that next episode. Um, but with that, that is one of our most complex Wild Idaho episodes to date. <laughs> Thank you, JR, for taking the time to sit down with us, not only today, but to take the recorder and, and meet with folks in the community and, and people who have spent their careers uh, working on, on issues such as these. So. Uh, really appreciate your work. Um, and we can't say enough how much we appreciate all of our listeners and all of ICL's members. Um, not only do you guys make this podcast possible, you make the work that JR does uh, protecting our watersheds, our water quality, our fish and wildlife. You make all of that possible. So you guys are, you guys and girls are rock stars. We really appreciate your work. And uh, if you are listening to the Wild Idaho podcast for the first time or again, uh, we'd love to have you share it with your friends and family. We'd also love to hear from you about ideas. Uh, if there's something you want us to talk about, we'd love to know what you're interested in. Um, you can share, rate, review, comment. We'd love to know that you're out there. So thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Wild Idaho podcast.